All right, we've been working our way through the book of Revelation, and today we're up to chapter 15, and then on to chapter 16. Um, So I might start by reading chapter 15. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. On Vision Radio, I sometimes hear a song by Jars of Clay called Two Hands. And in it, there's a line that goes... I have a broken disposition. I'm a liar who thirsts for the truth. And that's a very honest confession of something that many of us struggle with. Uh, It's something that I struggle with. It's a desire for good. It's a desire for truth and justice, but an incapability of being as good as I desire to be. It's, It's wanting to live by the Spirit but the flesh keeps on getting in the way. It's longing to live by faith, but not always trusting God quite as much as what we need to be trusting in God. It's wanting to be able to praise God for everything that he does, but then sometimes finding it hard in our circumstances to see his goodness in what he's doing. And in the very first verse of that same song, it says this. It says, I am a house that is divided in my heart, And in my mind, I use one hand to pull you closer, I use the other to push you away. If only I had two hands doing the same thing. Now, I wouldn't dare to speak on your behalf, even though I reckon it's probably pretty safe to do so, but I can speak on my behalf. I know that I have a broken disposition. I'm a liar who thirsts for the truth. I'm a house that is divided in my heart and in my mind. I use one hand to pull God closer and I use the other hand to push him away. My faith is weak. Today, I want to talk about faith. Only most times when we talk about faith, it's, it's about faith that God is going to provide something or it's faith that I will be healed or, or faith that somebody else will be healed or, or faith that I will be saved or faith that God will get me through this circumstance or faith that God will get me through that circumstance or faith that God will bring a sinner to repentance. But today I want to talk about faith in a way that you may have never, ever even considered faith ever before. Faith 
that the wrath of God is not only necessary, but good and just. Faith that the wrath of God is not only right, but that the wrath of God is wonderful. And that it's an expression of his goodness and love. Because of our broken disposition, sometimes it's hard for us to see God's wrath as something that is wonderful. You know, more often we find it as the wrath of God as something we, we apologise to people for or we try to explain it away. You see, we, we're using one hand to pull God closer, but we use the other hand to push him away. Uh, yes, Lord, we love you. We love your love, God. We love your grace, God. We love your mercy. Not so sure about your wrath. Yeah, I'm finding it hard to praise you for that. And I reckon this is partly because we never get to see righteous wrath demonstrated in our world. Because of our human brokenness, even where somebody is responsible for punishing wrongdoing, whether it be a parent disciplining a child, or a judge sentencing a criminal, or a teacher or a headmaster punishing a pupil, or a nation defending itself against an enemy, we so rarely get to see righteous wrath. Usually, one of two things happens. Either the wrongdoer doesn't get what they deserve because we feel that it's, oh, I can't really punish them so severely for that. After all, I've done something similar. I'll just let them off. Or the punishment that gets meted out is it's more of a lashing out in an uncontrolled fit of rage and it's got nothing at all to do with righteous judgment at all. It's revenge or it's malice or spite. It becomes an expression of our own unrighteous anger. And so if I was to use the example of a parent disciplining a child, an angry parent can very quickly lose their temper and beat the child and punish them way beyond what their actions deserved. Years before I became a parent, I heard a wise man say something that's always stuck with me. Never discipline a child from a place of rage. It's okay to do it while you're angry, but only if your anger is completely under control. If by disciplining your child it's making you feel better or making, giving you any sense of satisfaction, you just got to stop it immediately because that's not the right way. That's not righteous wrath. And of course, the flip side of this is many parents today feel that all physical punishment is abuse and so the punishment that is given isn't anywhere near what is deserved. And we are fast becoming a society where children who have now grown into adults um, have never been made to suffer the full consequences of their actions. And we wonder why lawlessness is increasing. Now, this is a limitation of our human brokenness. We want to see justice. As a community, we demand justice. Our politicians, they run for elections on a on a platform of justice. But because we ourselves are sinful creatures, rarely do we ever get to see it. Rarely do we ever get to see a righteous demonstration of wrath. 
But God isn't limited like what we are. God alone is holy. Just and true are his ways. And so God doesn't excuse wickedness because he's done something like it before, because he hasn't. And when God punishes the wicked, it is not an uncontrollable fit of rage. In Ezekiel, God tells us that he gets no pleasure from the death of the wicked. And here in Revelation chapter 15, when John is describing the wrath of God, he was given a visual image, and this is what he saw. He said, I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. You know what that image tells me? A sea of glass means there's no chaos here. There's no fit of rage here. But it's mingled with fire, which is a symbol of the judgment of God. The wrath of God is not an uncontrolled fit of rage. And gathered around this sea of glass, witnessing this righteous wrath, we're told are those who have conquered the beast and its image, and the number of its name. By the way, do you know how they conquered the beast? A couple of chapters ago, we learned that anyone who didn't bow down to Antichrist was killed. And this is how they conquered the beast. The temptation was there for them to deny Jesus. But they remained faithful to Jesus. And they were killed because of it. And that is how they conquered the beast. And here they are, they're praising God because God is about to unleash his wrath. And this is where I feel that many of us probably have a broken disposition. Even the people of the world call out for justice. But how many of us, even as Christians, really want the day of God's wrath to come? And this is where we, as disciples of Jesus need to be a people of faith. When it comes to wrath, we've probably only ever seen the injustices of how wrath is expressed in the world and we cast all of those images upon what we think the wrath of God is going to be like. And so we're not sure we really want the day of God's wrath to come. And yet by faith and by experience, we know that God is a God of love. And by faith and by experience, we know that God is a God of justice. We already know that God is a God of mercy. He's already provided a way for us to escape this day of wrath. That's what the cross is about. We repent of our sin, submit to the Lord Jesus Christ and receive forgiveness in his name. And so by faith, we trust that it's not only necessary, but that it is good and it's wonderful that those who reject God's mercy do not escape his wrath. In Revelation chapters 15 and 16, we've come to the seven bowls of God's wrath. And this is the final expression of God's wrath on the earth. And before we read chapter 16... I reckon we need to, in faith, accept that God's wrath on the earth is great and amazing, that it's wonderful. 
because that's what's proclaimed in chapter 15. And until we accept chapter 15, we're not ready to move on to chapter 16. Now, I'm going to throw something else in here as well. We also have to understand that as we come to chapters 15 and chapter 16, um, there will be no more conversions. Uh, those who haven't yet turned to God by this stage have hardened their hearts so much against him, there will be no more salvations. Verse 8 says that no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. And I, I think that's telling us that the window of opportunity is now shut. The window of opportunity from the time of Jesus right through until till the time of judgment has been open for God's mercy. But now, at this point, the mercy of God has ended and the time for judgment has come. So, I'm asking you a question now. That's not going to be a rhetorical question. By faith, will we accept that the wrath of God against those who reject his mercy is very good? Will we accept that? I'm seeing a lot of blank stares and a couple of very small nods. Is anyone a bit more committed to their faith than that? Can we accept that the wrath of God against those who reject his mercy is very good? I'm seeing some bigger nods of heads. Okay. For those people, we'll move on to chapter 16. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they have shed the blood of the saints and the prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw, coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits, performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, 
keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done! And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there has never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and cities of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, fell from heaven upon people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. Righto. I've said this every week for the last few weeks, so I'm going to have to say it again. We're always going to have trouble understanding the book of Revelation until we understand that it's not a start-to-finish sequence of events. And I'll use the same analogy I've been using. Um, the analogy of the instant replay that we have with our sporting events. In footy, somebody scores a spectacular try and we don't only see it once on the television, we see it three, four, five, six times from different angles shot with different cameras. Each time we're seeing something different, but it's recording the one event. And that's what we have with the book of Revelation. Back in chapters 8, 9 and 11, we encountered the trumpets 5, 6, and 7, which are also called the three woes. They're called the woes because these judgments are going to be so terrible. They're going to be far worse than the previous ones. Uh, the final trumpet, by the way, uh, the last of the three woes, that which is so terrible for the people of the world, well, we don't really see it as a woe. For us, it's a thing of joy. It's the return of Jesus. Um, but of course, for those who have rejected Jesus all their lives, the return of Jesus is the very last thing that they want to experience. And now, we have the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And this is another camera angle giving us another picture of these three woes. So I'm not going to pull out everything in it because we've already addressed some of it as we've read through the seven trumpets. Um, but I'll just look at what is some of the new things that we learn from this perspective. Firstly, we learn that this is the final judgment of God on the earth. Now we already have a pretty good idea of this, but I think this is the first time that we're actually told that this is the final judgments of God. Secondly, we also learn that despite it being an obvious judgment of God, the wicked refuse to repent. We're told that they curse God for the plagues, they curse God for their pain, they curse God for their sores, right? so they know that God's behind it. He's the one who gets the blame, but they did not repent of their deeds and they did not give glory to God. Now, I don't know, we see this in our world already, don't we? Pe plenty of people who say, oh, I don't believe in God, but then the first thing that goes wrong, they blame God for it. And 
they give God the blame. They know God exists. But the last thing they'll do is give their hearts to him. Now, this is just like the plagues of God that came upon Egypt. And just like Pharaoh hardened his heart, even though it was obviously God's hand at work, Pharaoh just hardened his heart against him, so too will the wicked harden their hearts. The first plague was harmful and painful sores. But these only came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. In other words, it only came upon, these sores only came upon people who were not Christians because the Christians are the only ones who didn't give in to the beast. The second plague was the sea became like blood and everything in it died. The third plague was like it, only this was the freshwater supplies of the world became like blood. The fourth plague was the sun became extra hot. Sounds like global warming, doesn't it? Eh? Now, you know as well as I do, the relentless media-driven campaign to put a stop to global warming, uh, the, the big campaign that we have to halt climate change. And if anyone who listened to the news last night or this morning um, are hearing how all the nations of the world, except for one, um, are standing against climate change and they're going to fix it. And Oh, my goodness. This would have to be the height of human arrogance. Now, way back in Genesis, we have the Tower of Babel being built. All the people came together. We can, we can do this. We can build this big tower to God. And God said, oh, I'm going to have to confuse them. The height of human arrogance for us to believe that we have the ability to change the climate of the earth. As if it is in our hands to fix it. Well, here we're given a, a very definite picture of global warming and we are not going to be able to do, it, do a thing about it. We've told very specifically who's, in, who's causing these plagues to happen. God is. The fifth plague was darkness. The sixth plague was the drying up of the great river Euphrates. So what? We've seen rivers dry up before. Seen it, I've seen it here in my time here in in St George. Well, the great river Euphrates, it wasn't just a river, or it isn't just a river. It was seen as, as a natural barrier to invasions from other lands. Um, rivers aren't such a big barrier to us these days. We can just fly jets over them anyway. But this was a symbol of barriers to invasion becoming ineffective. And then the seventh bowl is global upheaval. Um, storms, earthquakes that change the face of the globe faster than what Google Maps are going to be able to update. Hailstones that weigh 40 to 45 kilograms. Um, they'd hurt if they hit you, wouldn't they? Imagine the craters. Um, both my boys have had cars hit by hail, haven't you? Or was it just Jake? No, I think you did too. Yeah. Imagine if they got hit with hailstones, 45 kilos in weight. They'd be destroyed. Cities are destroyed. Islands disappear into the sea. Mountains are levelled. It's obviously the end of the world. So what is the result of all of this? Well, the wicked curse God. They won't repent. They won't give God glory. 
Satan and his antichrist and his false prophet, well, they send out their demonic representatives performing signs to entice the world leaders to unite their armies against God. And we'll learn more about the Battle of Armageddon in a few weeks' time. The angels, well, they're praising God for his justice. And in their words, the wicked are getting what they deserve. But what are the Christians doing? Well, we already know from the last few chapters we've been reading that, that the Christians are suffering terribly at the hands of the wicked during the times of these persecutions. But what do we learn that the Christians are doing now? Well, those who have already died are praising God for his righteous wrath. And those who are still alive are remembering the words of Jesus. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Last week in chapter 14, we discovered that as the day of the Lord approaches, how we live matters. It matters a great deal. And as we've been working our way through this book of Revelation, we've been discovering that Christians are going to suffer terrible persecution and that there's going to be a very subtle but very strong temptation to compromise. Temptation to compromise in our faith. Temptation to compromise in, in our witness to Jesus. Uh, temptation to compromise in our morals and in what we do. But Jesus is going to make a surprise return. Oh, it's not a surprise that he's going to turn up. We know that Jesus is coming. But the timing is the surprise. We don't know when he's going to return. Even Christians are going to be surprised on the day that Jesus returns. And so we are urged to stay awake and to stay dressed. Now, does that mean that we're all going to be propping our eyes open with matchsticks and that we're never going to change our clothes just in case Jesus chooses that moment to return? Of course not. It's a metaphor. It's telling us to be ready. We don't know when Jesus is going to come back. And so we need to get ready and stay ready. When the final judgment begins, there will be no more opportunities for mercy. So get ready and stay ready. And as with chapter 14, today in chapters 15 and 16, we have a, a call to endurance, to remain faithful to Jesus. To live a life of obedience to Christ. That's what we learned in chapter 14. The final judgment is coming. It's a wonderful thing. We might have to accept that on faith. But it is indeed a wonderful thing. Provided we get ready and stay ready. Let's pray.
Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Lord, your wrath is a wonderful thing. For in it we begin to understand the immensity of your mercy. Today as we consider the coming of your wrath, help us to, in faith, know the goodness and the justice of your wrath. And Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to remain strong in the faith. Help us to be ready for when Jesus returns. And Lord, may we never give up while there is still time. May we never give up proclaiming the mercy of God to the world. And Lord, we pray for our nation, we pray for our land, we pray for our community, that your gospel would go out, even through our words, and that people would receive your mercy, and that they would repent while there is still time. In Jesus' name, amen.